Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. Oh my God, he's done it so many times that I was getting dizzy eh, from counting all the different companies that he's built. You know, building, scaling, financing and exiting and also doing it in different geographic locations. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Mikhail Kokoric. Welcome to the show. Hello, Alejandra. Nice, nice to meet you. Nice to meet uh, for everybody who is listening to us. So originally born in Siberia. Eh, Miguel, I'm sure it was a little bit cold there. Give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, I I grew up in a small village, not far from Mongolian border, in a place where actually Genghis Khan started his conquest 800 years ago. And uh, at that time, actually, climate was colder. So uh, quite often, the temperature was minus 40 Celsius. So I was walking to my school 30 minutes with a minus 40, and then it was like now maybe walking in Dubai or Arizona. You know, it's very, very hot, very cold. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. No kidding. Now, now, obviously, you know, for you, you got into physics, you know, quite early on. So what, what developed? What got you into that? Several reasons. First, I didn't have internet. <laughs> Nobody had internet at that moment. We didn't have too many things to do because it was not like a big uh, town. And uh, also, I was grown up by my grandmother and grandfather. They were both teachers. And my grandmother was physics teacher, mathematics. And since childhood, I've been very excited with the physics, with astronomy, with everything that created our world. And I was a big fan of this. I was uh, in a competition for, for physics many times. So I, I love it. Now, in your case, you know, like it actually, instead of like pursuing physics or what you're doing now with aerospace, you know, you went into retail and wholesale. You know, what a what an inter interesting shift there, you know, given your passion. You know, I started in the beginning of 90s. If you remember, it's actually Soviet Union collapsed. And uh, at once, uh, the country didn't need like a physicist or mathematicians uh, because it was actually a hard time. You know, it was not too much. Uh, to eat, like it was a big use for the for the for the for the shops. It was difficult to get any money. And uh, when I started, it was uh, it was a big choice. Either you go abroad and study and uh, continue to work abroad, or you stay in Russia and doing something else than physics. Yeah, or you go to the physics in Russia and basically have not enough money to support your family. This is the reason why initially I become an entrepreneur, basically just to feed myself. Yeah, no kidding. So, and quite successfully so. So tell us, what were you doing there? What were, what were those companies that you built, you know, while, while this incredible growth tool of the economy was happening? Yeah, I actually was in a university when one of the guys from mining company came and said, hey, uh, to, to, to my professor, hey, we need to explode like several thousand tons of TNT, but need to do it, so don't destroy the city. Uh, he said, yeah, you should go to my student, this Michael. He's like a cool guy, 19 years old. So the guys came to me and said, hey, can you help us? I said, no problem. I didn't know shit how to do this. <laughs> but I sit over the night, make a computer program, calculate what should be the delays when you explode this like several thousand tons of TNT. And I bring them in a week, like the basic plan, what they need to do. And the guys, so uh, those serious guys, you know, like uh, from mining company, nice in Russia, you know, <laughs> they told, you men come with us and see how it's going. So I come to them, like, and then we exploded this thousand tons of TNT. I was thinking, Oh my God, if something go wrong, they put me you know, under the under the ground immediately in the same place. 
everything was good. So the guys basically took the thousand bucks, you know, the cash, and told me, hey, thank you. So this was my starting capital. Yeah. Then I started this. My first company was building and providing services for explosives uh, for uh, mining and for the construction. And uh, I was developing this company for five years before I sold it. I mean, hey, you know, like not not about outcome. You know, I guess that uh, being able to sell the business, you know, gave you also visibility into what the journey of building, scaling, you know, and, and reaching the finish line looks like. You know, how, how was that visibility for you? Yeah, you know, then I read this book of Sam Walton, How We Created Walmart in the beginning of 2000, 20 years ago. I was like 25 years old boy. And I, I, I thought, yeah, I, I want to do this. And at that, market, at that time, actually, the retail market in Russia was not yet developed. So uh, except maybe for the food, the most of the items, like uh, electronics or, you know, the, the, the furniture or the apparels or many, many different stuff, you actually need to buy on open, open markets. And you can imagine with the Russian climate how it was uncomfortable to go to buy in open markets. And I said, okay, I want to, to do something here. And actually, I started a retail company. Yeah, it was a journey for eight years when I built a retail company basically from one store to hundreds of stores from zero revenue to more than a billion revenue for, to 10,000 people. And it was like exciting times. We call it a roaring 2000s, like in a roaring 20s in the US when the market was growing with a double digit numbers every year when the whole country was built. And then, you know, why, why, how, how, how do you end up? Because you went through different transactions there. I mean, pretty substantial, the company that you guys had built. But then all of a sudden, one thing leads to the next and and there were some mergers, some uh, acquisitions there going on. So walk us through that too. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, for sure, with the retail, we actually uh, merged and acquired several times in the process. I like, uh, bought a couple of companies. I like, merged with other company, And finally, uh, in eight years, we built uh, one of the largest uh, retail non-food operator in Russia with basically um, uh, close to $2 billion in revenue with 10,000 people over the Russia and, uh, uh, and built it without any equity, uh, almost without any equity investments. It was all debts. And at that moment, the interest rate was not like now, it was 25%, 25 annual. <laughs> now we say, hey, it's like this, uh, the, rate, uh, the rate is too high, 3%, 4%, 5%. It was 25% retail. Uh, and we've been like uh, still successful in doing the stuff. So and then uh, I, after I've been able to sell it and pay my debts, and finally, first time in my life at that moment, I had no debts <laughs> uh, and some money, uh, not huge, but you know, good enough to make different fun. Uh, actually, I hit my middle age crisis. What are you gonna do? Yeah. So you are just thirty five years old guy. You built like a company with ten thousand people. You worked like a hell for ten years. You didn't see anything. You basically like a. Um, I started to fly with business class when I was 30, when I already had like millions of dollars, you know, so I really didn't know what to do with money at, at that moment. And uh, uh, instead of like, uh, like many going to Himalaya with, uh, you know, some yoga or doing some stuff, I decided, okay, I want to come back. I want to come back to something that for what I was taught, yeah, for, for something for my childhood dreams. And I decided to build uh, the first uh, private aerospace company back in 20. 2010. At that time, actually, not so many people knew about this. Yeah, and so the all this like a space uh, boom started much later. And when I first time uh, make a meeting of the former head of the Russian space agency with Elon Musk, actually nobody knew Elon Musk. Yeah, I was translating him for three hours before the first time Dragon was docked to the ISS. Nobody knew. Like only only like people in the industry knew him. I mean, being also the first one there, you know, I'm sure it was uh, tough to to be um 
uh, a new, you know, kind of like opening a new category there. What kind of challenges did that bring to you? Yeah, space uh, in general was not easy market, yeah, for, for many reasons. Uh, first, um, you know, I have this concept of like a, the startups that need one miracle or two miracles, yeah? Even to make one miracle, it's hard. Like, it's either the market miracle when you basically bet on some market or some product market fit or technological miracle. In space, usually it's much harder because you, in many cases, need two miracles. You need to make technological miracle because almost anything that you are doing is extremely hard from technology standpoint. But also you need market miracle because uh, when we started, the total size of aerospace market, of space market was around $300 billion. But out of this $300 billion, 150 was for very traditional uh, TV broadcasting. Yeah? It's like the boring old business. Around 100 billion was for the government programs, defense, the piloting. So for all private, actually, it was several, couple dozen million and couple dozen, couple dozen billion dollars. Like for the market, for example, imaging, yeah, where people say, yeah, it's like imaging, we need to make entire world. But the market was $2 billion yeah, for this. They all launch market to space. You see, this is a bunch of the small companies which build this, like, you know, the small launchers. They all launch your business to space. It's like, Five to seven billion annually. Uh, uh, most part of this market is like taken by 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 SpaceX. You know, the Chinese there for China. But this is a market smaller than market of the toasters in the US. Yeah, and people bet that this market will become big one time. So you have second miracle. And this is the main problem for space. In space, in the most segments, the market is small. Technological challenges are extremely high. In order to build. Something successful need to be very very hard, and we see that actually over this like many years we see uh, very few examples of relatively successful companies. In most of the companies, it's a, it's a, it's a constant pain. Yeah, it's a pain. Uh, it's like a, the people build companies for years and years and years. They cannot like build something substantial. But we believe that one day uh, some concepts can finally scale up and market is growing. And, but we're still waiting this. We still wait in this uh, gold rush. We still wait in when it will be this like a big application that can make this trillion dollars, you know, internet or something like this, which Elon Musk is doing, but what other will be applications? So, and I think so fundamentally what we see is after the launch of the Starship, probably we will be quite close to some of the new applications, which can finally this uh, open this like Pandora box and make this market lucky. I mean, in this case, only no, you were not only like dealing with building something from the ground up, but then also the the government, you know, was not very welcoming. You know, the instability, the insecurity, uncertainty, you know, I'm sure that that was painful to deal with because not only you're dealing with the uncertainty of building a company from nothing and dealing with that, but then now you have to deal with what's going on in the political environment. So how was that too for you? Yeah, this was a crazy, you know, like uh, I uh, before my current companies, before my current company, Destinos, I like was involved heavily in the four companies in space. In space, yeah, Daura Aerospace, Helios Wire, uh, uh, Astra Digital, and Momentus. Four companies. I would say um, almost all companies, from the business standpoint, from technology standpoint, from the market standpoint, was like a not bad. You know, I would say um, so. Three of them survived till now, actually, like working great and, and uh, making us a business. Uh, uh, Dauria was close in Russia when I left Russia for obvious reason. But but what I what I see that out of these four companies, 
the only company where we had like a non-problematic exit and operating was Helios Wire because it was registered in Canada. The Dauri Aerospace, which was in, in Russia, and the uh, Astra Digital and Momentus, which was in the U.S., they all had like for me the problem. So the Russian government basically kicked me out of Russia because of the support position. And uh, finally, I didn't have like a much more welcoming from the U.S. So nobody like uh, really, really welcomed, you know. So comparing with what I'm doing now in Europe, it's hard. It was hard. And this was actually a big lesson that when you are working in a, such a, let's say, strategically important business, yeah, you know, like aerospace, if you are not many generation like <laughs> a, a local guy, uh, these big imperial countries, it's hard countries. To deal with, you know, the, the Russia, US, probably China also. So, by actually operating in the smaller countries with uh, less this geopolitical ambitions, but with more business ambitions, we are now operating in Switzerland, Spain, France, Netherlands. It's much easier because they're much more pragmatic. You can easily go to the government. You can easily show why why you're important. They really see what you are doing. They really have a desire to understand that you are very uh, 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 beneficial for industry, for community. We got like in Spain, several grants, you know, the Spanish government gave us money to develop our technologies. Uh, we got like a lot of support in Switzerland, you know, getting in France. It's uh, easier to be noticed and in case if somebody has suspicions, it's easier to unveil these suspicions. Yeah, in the big countries, it's hard. US is DOD, this monster. They don't care. Yeah, no, I hear you. Now, now in your case, too, you know, obviously, one thing led to the next, you know, like you were going then, you know, in between Europe, you went to the US, uh, you know, you ended up, you know, launching to Elios, you know, which is the one that you were alluding to that you got registered in Canada, which had a, which had a really nice exit, you know, 25 million bucks. But that led to, you know, what ended up becoming a pretty big success story for you. And that was with Momentous Space. So with Momentous Space, you know, also one thing that you did there that I thought it was very interesting is that you joined Y Combinator. I mean, at this point, you know, you had, uh, you know, tons and tons of experience. I mean, you had built even a company to $2 billion in revenue, which is absolutely remarkable. So why did you find the need to join an accelerator program at this point? It's a good question, yeah, because uh, you give to Y Combinator 7% of the equity and it's like it's only small startup need to go, but... We've been new for this investor community in the U.S. And even like I already lived like five years, maybe like six years by the time when I, uh, with the momentum supplied for a combinator, actually, uh, I was not there because uh, how you, how you there? If you like studied in local university, if you know the local people, if you are all life, it's, it's actually not easy. It's a pretty close community. So I combinator definitely allowed us to open the doors. It was not easy to get there because like uh, the I think the usually the ratio of the accepted and applied companies it's ten times worse than you are filing to the Harvard. Harvard. It's like a one out of yeah. you know fifty or hundred companies only accepted. So but for some reason they accepted me. Uh, I had a good recommendations from companies in the industry. So I've been accepted. And uh, um, uh, we've been pretty successful in fundraising there's more than hundred million. Uh, very fast, and uh, but I think in Momentus we did uh, two uh, fundamental things that not uh, that, that actually like I was 
important for for one industry. And I think that what Momentus is still now doing, even without me, long term, it will have a lot of influence for the industry. First, we come with the first with this like a business model, new business model, because before Momentus, before we started to promote this in 2017, all delivery to space was mentally people did it as a single mode delivery. So you basically go from one point to another point. You deliver like with a one means of the transport, which never happened on Earth. You never like deliver uh, the parcel from Europe to US with a with the same like a one mean of transport. You are not getting the plane which fly from the small town in Europe somewhere to small town in US. No, no, it comes with a several modes. It's called multimodal transportation. It's multimodal transportation. And in space, it was not like this. You need to buy the whole rocket to fly to certain orbit, and this is the reason why. Uh, it was so many like uh, projects of building the stupid small rockets, yeah, uh, kind of crazy projects. Hey, let's build small rockets, deliver to the final so, small rockets, like extremely expensive. Uh, look at the cost of the start uh, of uh, Falcon Nine, even which is like, a, and it's artificially high cost because Elon Musk is monopolist. Yeah, uh, they charge you know, three to four thousand dollars per kilogram. Starship technically can be less than five hundred dollars per kilogram. If you go to small rocket, like a, for example, relativity space. Uh, rocket labs, rocket labs, then the cost is $50,000 per kilogram. 50000 from rocket labs. Yeah? So it's much more expensive, like flying to business jet, yeah? Uh, yeah, but you're not flying with business jet all the time. You're flying with connecting flights. So this was the idea that we meant to say, hey, we need to actually to use a big rocket, and then we need to build something that can fly in space and basically use this in-space vehicles to make a second mode transportation. That time was crazy idea. Investors didn't understand us. So why do you need this? Like, have small rockets. And now you see, now it's like uh, hundreds of companies trying to do the same. So we basically uh, opened like the mental, uh, this like uh, the people uh, realize, okay, you can do this. And now every everybody like doing this like uh, the, what we call space tax, in space delivery. But actually, first we actually started this and propose a whole business model and build a company around this business model. You've been asked. Second, uh, we also realize that you need to do the different uh, technology for the propulsion because. Traditional propulsion doesn't work. You cannot use cryogenic propulsion in space for a long time because it's like it's difficult to store cryogenic fuel, liquid uh, oxygen or methane. And uh, electrical propulsion are extremely slow. If you use like electrical propulsion, you can only change little bit orbits, but flying to the like a big change orbit is very long. You can spend years to do this. And uh, we come with the idea, hey, let's use something between, like a thermal propulsion when we heat the the liquid or the gas to high temperature and basically create like a with a, with a, with a, with a solar energy, but use like from chemical rockets to expel through the muzzle. And you can use like water as a, as a, as a, as a fuel, yeah? And water is everywhere in space. Finally, you can get water from the, from moon, from asteroids, because to get one kilogram of mass from Earth to the geostationary orbit, you need to start with a hundred kilograms. So only one percent can be delivered because we are living on the bottom of the huge gravity well. The Earth's gravity is so strong that only one percent of the initial mass can be delivered out. Can you imagine if actually the Earth would be 10, 20% bigger, then the chemical rockets wouldn't be able to fly out of Earth. The space age would be probably delayed for several hundred years until people will build, I don't know, some nuclear rockets. Yeah? But from the moon, when you deliver something from the moon, you actually start with just double mass. So you deliver like one kilogram, you start with two kilograms, not with 100 kilograms. And moon have like many uh, uh, billions tons of, of water. So finally, moon is a huge uh, future, the oil station. Yeah, this oil well where the humanity in the future will be getting this like the water. Uh, and uh, 
and because this is a currency, you need to do this. Yeah. And this was two things that Mementos did, and I think that's still not appreciated. It's like a two changing of mentality. Don't stick with a propellant that was used for the other applications. If you want to have industrial revolution space, your propellant should be industrial. You cannot do with like this xenon, uh, you know, with a, with a, with a argon, but need to be water. And second, it needs to be also multimodal logistics for almost everything. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And, you know, in this case with Momentus too, I mean, you raised quite a bit of money. You raised $250 million, But it sounds like going public presented all types of issues, you know, for you. And in fact, you know, this ended up, uh, you know, kind of like uh, giving you the, the, the path, you know, to exit. So uh, what happened there? I mean, it was definitely not the best experience in my life, yeah. By this time, if you remember, uh, in 2020, just coronavirus started, yeah? Yeah. Uh, and uh, and uh, initially, the first like a, the first like a part of this coronavirus was actually hard time because everybody stopped investing. It was like a real problem, yeah. So everybody was scared that basically life is stopped. Yeah? Life is stopped. And uh, then like uh, people see this opportunity to raise money through this like a new spark, which instrument for some reason become popular because many people sit at home, get a lot of government money and start to play, you know, uh, with the stock stock market. And the first actually space uh, company which made APO was uh, Jurgen, um, yeah, with uh, uh, with, a, with like a, the, the Branson Branson. And we 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 supposed to be the second. We actually like uh, filed in summer of twenty twenty, and we uh, we plan to become public by November. Of 2020, yeah, so was our schedule to become public. The, the problem was that for, for all these years, it was not easy for me to uh, to be in the U.S. Uh, in terms of the like my let's say the my relation with U.S. government, yeah. So I come uh, with a O1 visa, like a, uh, it's called Einstein visa, yeah, Einstein visa. Oh, now you can call it Melania Trump visa <laughs> because she also got <laughs> the same visa, but right. it's actually supposedly for the. For the Invest in like inventors, scientists, like for yeah. engineers, entrepreneurs. But uh, yeah, yeah. now everybody called Melania Trump business. So 
I come with a visa and then like uh, uh, after three years in the US, I decided, okay, I probably need to stay here. I probably want to stay here. So we applied for the green card uh, in 2014 and uh, in two weeks we got approval. So extraordinary, this individual with extraordinary ability, uh, EB1. <laughs> and then uh, basically normal process, you need to make this uh, the change of the status of education. So after uh, uh, and then it's like start to extend. Usually it takes like one year. Yeah, it's a change of start to sort of like accept you. If you're not Indian, if you're Indian, you can wait for 20 years. For Russians, pretty fast because not so many as Indians. <laughs> so, but it's like a take take lots of time usually. Yeah. So, but for me, it was like take one year, two years, three years, and then four years, and then finally in 2018, we got a, a letter from UCIS saying, "Hey, yeah, we change fucking our opinion, <laughs> and we think that you are not uh, anymore." Uh, qualified to be extraordinary guy. You know? After launching dozens of satellites, after you know building companies, hiring hundreds of people, doing US a lot of stuff, hiring dozens of patents, say, hey, you look like not not me. Just know it was this visa is given to the people hacking fucking photographs. That's all you know. So like it's plenty of people getting this like visa. So and uh, uh, we we filed like a, a you know appeal didn't come. So actually finally I won this legal case only after five years. Uh, with the, through the federal court, yeah. So last year I got uh, the decision from federal court uh, uh, of California in California, the federal court that told that this decision was arbitrary, capricious, illegal. Um, yeah. So, um, but I already left the US, so I really don't want to, to, to come back. But at that time, I had no other reason that I applied just for asylum, yeah. And uh, because I've been in a uh, let's say a position to Putin since the beginning of two thousands, and and the reason why I left Russia. In, uh, 2012 was actually the, 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 the my active position. I filed for political asylum and basically was waiting for this political asylum. But then, like, US government say, hey, uh, you know, this asylum guy, we don't know, he's like a Russian, maybe he's bad. And uh, finally, they basically start to, uh, how we say that, put sticks in our wheels. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, didn't allow us to fly, uh, get delay with our licenses. And finally, they uh, wrote this letter to a security commission, said, yeah, and it's like, the IPO with this guy's CEO possesses risk of national security because he is Russian, he comes from Russia, he like uh, uh, in Russia had a company with Russian investors, which is like stretch because yes, the company with Russian investors, sure. So. And uh, oh, it's, uh, it, even worse, his company was in Skolkova, but it was in the time of Medvedev when in Skolkova was also Boeing, uh, Sista, IBM, and other companies, you know, the Russian Silicon Valley was everybody there. <laughs> and uh, they basically thought, you know, it was bad because he was in a, in a Skolkova, but everybody was in Skolkova. So um, at this moment, uh, basically, uh, me and the board decided that uh, we need uh, to solve this problem, I need to leave the company. So I left as a CEO, as a board member. Finally, I sold my shares for uh, kind of small fraction of the of the money that uh, at that moment company was. And uh, finally, company hired like under Secretary of Defense, whole board of the defense people, and finally become public already without me after half a year. So this was my story. Wow, very disappointing. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's like what they say: you know, one door closes, another one opens. And the next one that opened for you is uh, what you're up to now, which uh, brings you. To my to my country, to Spain. So Destinus. So what are you guys doing with Destinus? And uh, you know, walk us through what's the business model there. How are you guys making money? After I left, like uh, Momentus, and I spent some time like uh, thinking what I should do. After uh, I was like, uh, I tried to do this as a 
kind of more or less rigorous exercise. I look for the different markets, try to understand like which market uh, have a lot of opportunity, not yet developed, so you have chances for the people who are not yet like expert in these like markets. Away, I could have some uh, uh, competitive advantages. Yeah, so for example, I cannot probably come to some AI stuff because I'm not like this young geek, you know, so I cannot compete in this stuff. Yeah, so no more something real. And with this was idea come uh, as a pretty simple because you see finally finally uh, if you're talking about transportation ultimately it's everything about the speed yeah ultimately everything about speed and uh, uh, and uh, look at the uh, last uh, 70 years of the progress in transportation systems for example in trains yeah you know trains we start with 70 kilometers per hour now uh, if you're talking about TGV, uh, it's already 400 kilometers per hour, like Spanish trains, you know, it's like 300, 400, or if you're looking uh, about Japanese, it's uh, even faster, or Maglev, it's like uh, 500, you know, uh, 600 kilometers per hour. So it's uh, it's improvement by, by order of magnitude, you know. In aviation, it's also aviation changed. Since the golden age of aviation, planes become a thousand times more reliable, like 10 times more fuel efficient, you know, less noisy, uh, but speed didn't change, except for the short time of the Concorde, it didn't change. No. And, the reason, uh, and the reason was like quite obvious. Yeah, with the Concorde, it was uh, uh, short range, too loud, uh, too inefficient, you know, dirty, so it was like a lot of problems. Uh, and uh, and uh, the only way to overcome this, it was logical, you need to actually fly higher. Yeah? <laughs> when you fly higher, but you need to fly faster, you have less density, and it's actually uh, use, uh, exponentially, and then when you fly faster, you have less uh, gravity losses. Yeah, uh, you have less aerodynamic losses. So actually, you can uh, achieve much more efficient overall energy of transportation. This is the reason why, for example, in Musk talking about even suborbital flights, yeah, point-to-point uh, -point transportation. I'm not sure that this is a solution for 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 all cases because you know you need to have like a spaceport and still using the Air Force, you need to use the planes. But this is always the idea. We, we want to build very fast planes, which eventually uh, will use hydrogen because this is an amazing fuel. This is a fuel of the future for high-speed transport. It's, it's at like an extremely high heat capacity, so you can actually use the hydrogen to cool everything that is hot in your vehicle. Like kerosene, you cannot use it for this. And uh, you can fly from Madrid to New York in an hour and a half, you know? So wow. this is our goal. Yeah, I, I would love to jump on that uh, on that flight. That's for sure. You know, it would definitely shorten things by a mile. And for the company, for Destinus, how much capital have you guys raised to date, Michael? So we raised like a 50 million Swiss francs. Yeah, because we are legally as uh, our headquarters in Switzerland. So Swiss francs almost the same like euro. I think 10 percent more than dollars. Yeah, we have uh, 140 people. So uh, we built and flew two of our prototypes uh, already. We are presenting in La Bourget, and those who will be in La Bourget Paris Air Show in the second part of June of this year in uh, Paris, please welcome to our tarmac. It will be in front of Airbus and Dassault, <laughs> where we present two our planes which have been flying, and one supersonic uh, plane, which will be the first supersonic unmanned plane in Europe, and it will be the first supersonic plane powered by hydrogen in the history of aviation. That's amazing. That is, that is huge. Now. Talking about huge things, let's say you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Destinus 
is finally realized. What does that world look like? This would be a wonderful world. First, by this time, the hydrogen will become the main carrier of energy, which will be produced by any other means with uh, fusion, fusion, with uh, solar, wind, you know, uh, 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 with uh, with all this like uh, geothermal energy, and then will be transported and stored in the form of the hydrogen. The most of aviation will move to the hydrogen because it's uh, the, the the only the most efficient uh, finally the fuel which which uh, uh, will reduce the carbon emission to zero basically, yeah, because the only emission from the hydrogen's water. And uh, uh, the planes uh, will be connecting the bis- these big mega airports, which will be probably next generation bigger airports located further from the big cities. Uh, this, we actually saw this process. For example, if you go to the uh, uh, DC, Washington DC, you see like in the center of the city, the Serigan airport, yeah? small one. It's fine only the local, like in the US flights. There are some Europeans, but not too many. Then they build like the bigger uh, airport, Dallas, yeah, which the bigger, uh, larger. And in the future, uh, it will be even larger and more remote airports. Why? Because planes will become again more louder at the takeoff. Supersonic, hypersonic planes, suborbital, they will be loud. Yeah. So then instead of flying from uh, basically Santa Monica in LA, you will fly from Mojave and go to Mojave with a Hyperloop or high-speed train for half an hour. Yeah? And then from Mojave, you can have 20 runways with a supersonic, hypersonic flights, with a landing with rockets and, and basically uh, be connected with any point of the world everywhere. And then the world can be that you wake up in, uh, in basically in uh, uh, New York and uh, you you have a meeting like uh, this uh, afternoon with your friend in Buenos Aires. You sit down on the plane. You go to this uh, high-speed uh, train or high-speed hyperloop to the airport. In one hour, you are already in a plane flying to Buenos Aires. One hour and a half, you're in Buenos Aires. Have a lunch, a beautiful Argentinian steak. Fly back to New York and sleep at your house. I love it. That is, that is absolutely unbelievable. Now, now, hey, we're talking about the future here. Let's talk about the past, but doing it with a lens of reflection. Let's say I was to bring you back in time. You know, maybe I bring you back in time to... You know, that moment where you are, you know, still, you know, in, in Russia and you're thinking about, you know, launching a company of your own. And at that moment, you know, you have the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self and you're able to give your younger self one piece of advice for launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Uh, I would tell to my younger one, learn languages. Yeah, uh, because, you know, usually if you are talented in mathematics and physics, uh, you will be talented in mathematics physics. If you're not talented in mathematics physics, you will not be. Even if you spend 10 times more time, fuck not. I mean, this is like either with, a, with, a, with your genes, yeah? So somebody good here, somebody good there, we're all different, it's okay. If, like, uh, I born good in physics, if somebody born not good in physics, even if you spend 100 times more time, you will not be good in physics, yeah? The same, if I cannot paint, I will not be able to paint, even if I spend, like, 100 years to do this, yeah? But languages, everybody should know, because this is the way how we interact even with AI it still will be. So spend time with languages. It was actually a big setback for me because I didn't speak English. I didn't speak languages. I spent like 10 years actually to uh, to, uh, to this issue so I can start like my international business. So first, second, uh, uh, get a good boss. You get a good boss. You know, you should, not the company boss. In in every human life, in every like professional life, at some moment of your life, it was somebody who actually was the role for you. For whom you kind of copy, all monkey, you know, we copy others. If you have a good boss with whom you work like five, ten years, and you can something imitate and mimic this guy and work with him, this is a 
incredibly important. Don't start to, uh, to, to start your own company if you want. You're not fucking Zuckerberg. You're not fucking like these guys. It's, a, it's exceptions. The best age to start a new company is 45 years, 40 years. Before, it's only like uh, this, uh, what we call this uh, selection bias. You see these guys because they are successful, but for these guys, it's thousands of people, millions of people who, who was unsuccessful. Very painful. They lost all the time. They lost, like, they never been able to get the experience. They become like, look on Silicon Valley, the half of these people actually, it's a miserable life. Don't try to start a company early on. Get a good boss, work for somebody. Work for somebody for whom you can teach, for whom you can learn. And then when you learn, when you know the stuff, then you can start your company. When Then you understand the stuff. And then in 30 years, you should start to think about this. 40 years, you can start to do it if you want to do it. Or maybe by this time, you already run, run uh, uh, as a company. Yeah, and uh, when you start entrepreneur, this is several things that is very, uh, uh, very important. Like I would say, uh, so first, uh, uh, the incredibly important to have like a value of the people you need to, because finally, company is reflection of yourself and your values. This is like will be the world. You hire people, you fire people, then you pick people whom you like, and then it will be a reflection of your, your, you don't need to be afraid to fire people. If people is not good, if some reason people don't like, it should be easy. It should be easy to fire and hire. People are afraid to fire. They shouldn't be afraid to, uh, to fire. Let people go. If it's not people, I had like a, still my, uh, my my in my memories in my one of the first company I had a guy um, who actually was playing the computer games all the time. It's kind of no. And then he basically told him, yeah, his name was Sergey. No, not Brin. Brin was like Sergey. He said, Sergey, you know. Uh, I think it's like what we are doing is not for you. You should do something else. You just like, you know, you should like go and find something. So I basically fired. And he became founder of the second largest game company in Russia at the time. It was a multi-hundred million dollar company. Extremely successful guy. And then we met him and he said, no, this was the right decision. You fired me. And actually, this is the one when I started my my, my company, when I started to sing because I had this passion for the games, I started doing it by myself. And then for many years, I finally built, built a big company. It's a very famous company. Everybody played. I, would not, I wouldn't say the name of this company, but many people know this company. Yeah, and uh, don't don't afraid to fire. Uh, and also the second, be careful with your equity. Yeah. Um, if you give equity too early with a too low valuation to some investors, you know, at some moment you will lose your, you lose like your motivation because when you, uh, especially because you you don't know uh, how fast you find your product market, be careful with equity. If you can do something without raising money, do without raising money. If you raise money, raise at high valuation. Uh, don't listen to people who say, hey, you need to raise from good investors. It's fucking bullshit. The good thing that investors can do, give money, go away. Yeah? This is a good thing. Doesn't matter. Money doesn't smell, you know. <laughs> Get a good valuation. Do your stuff, you know. The investors will never help you. They can only mess it's like people also never say people say, oh, investors are very important. It's like, no, it's, it's not just the only thing that is important than to bring another money, yeah, to get introduction. This is good. But uh, in many cases, most of the cases, investors start to influence the business. It means that there's a problem. Yeah, yeah. there's a problem in the business. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Michael, those are incredible nuggets. They're very profound. I guess for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? To me, yeah, LinkedIn. LinkedIn, I'm not promising that answering fast, but you know, for sure, if it's like something that it makes sense for both of us, I usually answer pretty fast, yeah. So uh, LinkedIn is a good way to, to reach to me, yeah. Uh, or 
follow also like on a, on a Twitter and issues on Twitter now like on Twitter soon it will be like also almost like Telegram you can exchange with Elon Musk doing a credible job for the for the Twitter should be a good platform very soon amazing well hey Michael thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show today it has been an honor to have you with us thank you Alejandro and thank you everybody. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.